Welcome to EFG's podcast, Beyond the Benchmark. I'm Daniel Murray. I'm the Deputy CIO and Global Head of Research. And I'm really pleased to have with me today my esteemed colleague, Stefan Gerlach, former Deputy Central Bank Governor at the Bank of Ireland, former senior official at the Bank for International Settlements, former chief economist for uh, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, and uh, many other accolades to his name as well. Stefan, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, I'm looking forward to our conversation. And I thought I'm, I might start with uh, asking you to share your views on growth. And uh, just um, obviously the background is one where there was almost universal agreement that the world was going to enter recession in the first part of this year. But actually, recently, the data seems to be holding up a bit, you know, a bit better than expected. So temporary blip, or do you think that's uh, something that uh, is going to develop into a trend? So I fear that I still think this is a sort of a temporary uh, blip. Um, to my mind, the key issue here is that we've seen a, a, a massive monetary policy tightening across the world, hundreds of basis points over the time span of you know, something like two, two quarters, something like that. So there's a much more dramatic tightening and a much faster tightening of monetary policy than we have seen uh, ever or for at least for a very long time, the last 30, 30 years or something like that. And we know that monetary policy has an impact on the economy that is delayed quite substantially. In the past, we thought that probably the peak effect of monetary policy on an economic activity occurred something like four quarters after policy was was tightened. And since policy was tightened from last summer onwards, it's simply too early to expect monetary policy to, to have a big bite um, uh, in on economic activity yet. Um, so I, yeah, so, so I, I think it, I fear it, it's too it's too early. There are a number of other things that sort of have worked the right way and have boosted economic activity: reopening of China, lower energy prices, and so on. So perhaps um, this is my concern. Perhaps the sort of the contractionary impact from tighter monetary policy has sort of been dwarfed by these other more immediate effects. Um, so I'm a little bit worried. Could you perhaps? Uh, give an indication of the sort of ways in which you might expect that lagged impact of last year's monetary tightening to manifest itself. What sort of signals do you think you should expect to see that it's finally starting to take impact? So I think instead of of uh, looking at just the sort of broad uh, real GDP growth or broad labour market indicators, I think one should do exactly what you suggested in your question here. One should sort of say, well, where do we expect this to show up and go and look there? And of course, we would expect tighter monetary policy and higher interest rates show up in the interest rates sensitive parts of spending. And that is par excellence, the housing market. So in the current setting, I think it makes sense to go and look at housing markets and see what's happening in them and, and so on. And of course, uh, the data that we have on house prices, for instance, uh, is lagging a bit. And there are always issues of, uh, of, of um, so how indices are constructed, for instance, are house price indices only for the capital city, are they for the whole country, um, and so on. But I think by and large, certainly in the US, I think it's clear that uh, that uh, tighter monetary policy is showing up in the housing market. And that process is slow. I mean, first the interest rates go up and then people realize they face a larger mortgage bill. 
And they, in the beginning, perhaps they start cutting back a little bit of spending, or perhaps they don't do anything in the first couple of months. And then after, after some time, they start cutting back on spending. And that sort of gets um, 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 sort of embedded in, in, in consumption spending, in overall consumption spending, and the growth of consumption spending. And after some time, companies react and realize they're spending, you know, uh, uh, on their good sales are lower than anticipated and, and then they start cutting back on, on labor uh, and so on. So I think we should start looking at, uh, at the housing sector and I fear that things are not, uh, are not uh, as good as they could be in that, in, that, uh, in that sector. Obviously, the last time we had a big uh, issue in the housing market, it was associated with the global financial crisis in 2008-9. Are you concerned at all about the possibility of a repeat? I think not yet. I mean, this is uh, that downturn was so dramatic uh, because the, the the global financial crisis was a crisis of the, of the financial system. I mean, think of it. So sort of, it was almost like a, a, an economic heart attack, if you want. Banks and financial institutions stopped functioning properly. Uh, the flow of credit was immediately interrupted and so on. We're not seeing that uh, at all now. Banks are in fine situation. Financial institutions are generally in, in, a fine, um, in, in a fine situation as well. So now it's more of a traditional um, uh, uh, effect, if you like. Simply higher outlays for housing means that consumers have less money to spend and therefore start cutting back on spending and then that's propels itself through the economy. So I think the situation is very different I and mean, we will not see the same sharp downturn, but it could still be unpleasant. Yeah, I think that's right. Certainly the uh, financial system is better capitalised and the uh, quality of loans extended seems to have been much more carefully monitored um, in this cycle than during 2008-9. So I would concur with you that the likelihood of a repeat of financial crisis seems, um, seems very low at the moment. Um, now, Obviously, in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, we saw massive central bank balance sheet expansion. And that uh, was then you know, built upon during the COVID crisis when central banks again um, hugely and very rapidly expanded their balance sheets. But we're now starting to see that going to reverse, albeit quite slowly. How do you think that affects the policy landscape? Well, this is a major source of uncertainty, I think, right now. Um, central banks don't really know how this will impact on the financial system, and they are very worried about it. And then, therefore, they try to minimize the impact um, of the contraction of the balance sheet by announcing well in advance what they will be doing um, in the hope that the financial system will adjust and say, well, the balance sheet will will shrink so so much next month, the month after, and so on, um, and uh, and therefore um, financial institutions will act in such a way as to minimize these, the the disturbances that could emanate from this uh, from this decision or could be caused by this decision. Last time the Fed shrunk its balance sheet, they did run into problems unexpectedly and had actually to change course and start buying government bonds again. And I think that's something all central banks would like to would like to avoid. So it's a big, big uncertainty in the current um, in the current situation, and um, we just have to see what what happens uh, here. It seems that, like it's um, going well so far in the U.S., and we have to see what happens in Europe. Uh, now it is a it is a it is a risk. I must I must say. Do you think balance sheets will ever get back to similar size relative to GDP that they were, say, in two thousand and six, or do you think uh, we're going to 
forever live in a world where central bank balance sheets are much larger as a share of GDP? Oh, I think they will be uh, plainly substantially larger than they were then. And there are several reasons for that. One important factor uh, are regulatory considerations. Now, banks need to have more liquid funds available. Uh, and that means that they will uh, that they will have, yeah, they would like to have larger uh, larger balance sheets, uh, and they like to have larger deposits with the, with the central banks and and so on. So that's a big factor. And of course, the other factor is over time, gradually, um, the demand for currency in banknotes is growing in most in most countries, certainly in the U.S., and that generates a a demand for a larger central bank balance sheet. So I don't think we're going to get back to that uh, uh, situation. If you like, there's simply more demand for what economists would call high-powered money or the the size of the central bank balance sheet, the stuff that goes into central bank's balance sheet. So no, we're going to see much larger balance sheets in the future. And that is also, of course, another factor. It's hard for central banks to know, well, how much... uh, how much uh, larger will the demand actually be? Where where will we? What is the appropriate size of the balance sheet now? We know it's larger than it was in two thousand and seven, but how much larger? We also know that it's surely smaller than the, than the size of the balance sheet right now, but how much smaller? So it's a it's a hard uh, judgment question, and I think central banks would just gradually have to sort of feel their way forward until they find an appropriate uh, level, and where that level is. They, they don't really know now. No, that, that's a, a good point. I, I recall uh, the last time the Fed tried to do this, as you noted, it was a challenging situation for markets, but also uh, it required a few iterations before they got to a level that was commensurate with what the commercial banks needed. So I'm sure it will be a, a similar process again. Obviously, markets are very interested in that mix between uh, growth and, and policy. And in particular, at the moment, there's been a lot of focus on... Um, interest rates and you know where will central banks end and for how long will they stay there with uh, you know particular view on the fed and those expectations have shifted around the head of a lot recently what are your thoughts about um, you know how much further the fed is going to hike and and how long it will stay there so i suspect that the fed will raise rates some place north of 5% uh, five and a quarter five and a half something like that uh, Market sentiment right now is is very brittle, I think. Uh, It looks like markets react very strongly to uh, individual uh, data points. So it's sort of hard to know what, uh, what, and it also looks like the Fed itself is reacting strongly to individual data points. So it's hard to know exactly where this will end up. But it seems clear the Fed will raise interest rates a couple of times more um at, i think at least two three times more now in spring and perhaps perhaps further in, in the fall we just have to see data us economic data has been very strong recently unexpectedly strong and we don't know if that's just a fluke uh, or if that if the, something that we just go away or if it is really a, is an indication that the us economy is subs- substantially stronger than we thought we just um, we just don't know no, absolutely. It's, uh, I think you alluded to that well, which is just that there's a, an awful lot of uncertainty at the moment, perhaps you know more than normal. And uh, you know, that feedback loop between policy, markets and economic activity is uh, uh, you know, really important at the moment. Um, we touched on the US, but you know, what are your thoughts about the ECB and, and Europe? Because that too is going through a similar process of uh, you know, 
hiking rates with some uncertainty about just where the ECB is going to finish and how long they're going to be there. So I think probably the the ECB is closer to to um, stopping uh, interest rate increases. They will surely raise interest rates now in March if for no other reason, Madame Lagarde. The president of the ECB has essentially announced that they will that they will do so, and that of course means that they have to do so, or she will face a battery of questions from journalists asking if she, if she was wrong, if she changed her mind, and so on and so forth. So I feel that the ECB is pretty much forced to raise interest rates uh, uh, in, in March. Perhaps they will do so another another once or twice. I mean, I think in March they will raise interest rates by 50 basis points. You could imagine that they would do another 50 basis points, perhaps in one step later on or in two 25 basis point steps, but something like that. I think we will see interest rates probably something like a 100 basis points higher than they are right now. Um, so, yeah, whereas in the case of the Fed, I think the Fed could well raise interest rates by something like a, um, yeah, more like, uh, yeah, pretty, um, perhaps even more than 100 basis points. Yeah, we don't know. But I think the ECB is much closer to stopping, I think, than the, than the Fed. The European economy has been exposed to very different types of shocks than the US economy. In the, in the US economy, the level of demand, I think, is much stronger because of very expansionary fiscal policy. We haven't seen the same thing in Europe. So therefore, I think, I think less tightening is needed here than in the US. It might say it's uncertain. Uh, everywhere in the world. It's particularly uncertain in the UK with the cross-currents of Brexit. We had Andrew Bailey, the governor, this week uh, making a rather ambiguous statement about the future path of rates. Uh, do you have any thoughts on the UK policy? I, I must say I'm a little bit worried about the Bank of England. The Bank of England, certainly when I started to uh, uh, to look at central banks in detail, uh, actually at the, at, the, at the BAS, the Bank for International Settlements, 30 years ago, the the Bank of England was seen as by far the most capable central bank in terms of judging policy, understanding how policy would interact with the financial system, and so it was really the the most impressive central bank. And recently, there's been so many miscommunications and changes of directions and so on in the case of the uh, um, of the UK. Uh, so I'm a little bit. It's it's hard. It's simply hard to judge what the what the Bank of England uh, what the Bank of England uh, will do. I think they will raise rates further um, uh, uh, for, uh, uh, for sure. But uh, well, I mean, like in, in the case of the euro system, it looks like the Bank of England is probably closer to to uh, uh, to cease these interest rate increases. I, I suspect that they will see another twenty five basis points in March. But thereafter, it's it's uh, it's hard to know. But of course, the situation could. Uh, could change rapidly, and and um, the bank, I think, as I said, is a little bit hard to predict now. It looks like the, it has become quite a a, a, um, a difficult uh, central bank to to, uh, to understand. So so um, we will see. Indeed, and uh, I think you know, surprising uh, as much the rest of the world that how well the UK economy is holding up, but particularly in the UK, given uh, the additional challenges of Brexit and the uh, the political noise that's ensued from that. What about uh, the country where you and I both have the pleasure of living, Switzerland? Yeah, Swiss policy is always viewed as very safe and uh, reliable, um, but you know the SMB not completely without controversy. So, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? 
So I suspect that we'll see higher interest rates here in Switzerland. Uh, in, uh, inflation uh, is is not in the zero to two percent range uh, that the that the SMB would like to see it in. Uh, the Swiss economy is. Uh, I mean, it looks almost like the Swiss economy or the real side of the Swiss economy, economic activity and unemployment and so on, almost looks impervious to changes in interest rates. It's remarkable. I guess one factor uh, explaining that is that uh, is, the sort of, is the structure of the Swiss exports. A large part of what happens in the Swiss economy depends on what happened to the export sector. In Switzerland, exports um, products are not very very uh, price-sensitive, like pharmaceutical products, or watches, and, and so on. So I think the SMB is in the happy situation where they don't need to worry so much about triggering a recession and can, can therefore focus monetary policy more squarely on, uh, on the rate of inflation. And I suspect that we would like to drive the inflation rate back to something more well, closer to 1%. I mean, we know that before um, the global financial crisis, inflation uh, averaged uh, in, in the 10 years before that, uh, averaged about 1% here in Switzerland. I suspect that that's the level that the SMB would like to return to. And, you know, the one central bank that has been beating to a different rhythm is, uh, of course, the Bank of Japan. Um, where they continue to expand their balance sheet, but we are about to see a new governor there. Do you think that will herald a new period of monetary policy, or do you think it's going to be more of the same? It, it might very well herald a new pe- period of monetary policy, not necessarily because the governor is changed, but because economic conditions in Japan are, are changing. So the the uh, rate of inflation is now much uh, much above zero, or it's no longer negative, much, much above being negative. There's a lot of speculation that um, the Bank of Japan will need to tighten monetary policy, and that seems like a very reasonable guess. And, and of course, if they are going to tighten monetary policy, then the question is, and what will they do? I mean, will it, that will entail a large change that coincides with the appointment of a new governor. So I do think we'll see a, a new monetary policy in Japan. And to what extent that's being driven, or the extent to which the new governor will play a role in the formulation of that, I mean, is is unclear. I suspect, though, that he probably will have a his own view. Um, he doesn't. He's an ex-academic, and of course, a long experience earlier from the Bank of Japan. But he is uh, an outsider in a sense, and I think he 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 will have his own. He will have his own view. Um, one one way in which academic central bank governors, so central bank governors that come from the academic sector, differ from. Um, governors who are appointed from within a central bank or from the Ministry of Finance is that they often have um, to, uh, their own views and, and about how policy should change. And they're quite, quite happy to introduce changes, whereas those that come from within the central bank probably are more likely to continue past policies or inversion of past policies. So I do think we will see a change in policy in Japan. But what exactly that will entail, I think it's too early to say. One of the consequences, obviously, of rising short rates is that bond yields have gone up at the longer end of the curve. And that necessarily means that government financing is more expensive. Uh, you know, governments have run large deficits for uh, the last few years and you know, debt to GDP ratios are high. So do you think uh, there's potentially going to be government funding problems in, in the years ahead uh, as they deal with these higher costs of borrowing? No, I... Um... 
Well, I mean, obviously, higher interest rate is a problem. But if you're asking, will we see a fiscal crisis of the type that we saw in Europe around well, about ten years ago? I, I think not. I think, I, I think not. Um, um, and also, I mean, one reason we did see these problems uh, ten years ago was that markets started to fear, I should say, that governments, particularly in the in the, in the south of Europe where they had been running very large uh, deficits in the past, they were worried that the fiscal sustainability would become a real issue. And then, uh, obviously, if you're worried about that, you expect interest rates perhaps to, um, to rise perhaps sharply, and then you may, um, you may want to um, take your money home to avoid capital losses on, on your bond holdings in these, in these countries. By now, the ECB has uh, other instruments that it can use to prevent that from, uh, from happening. So I think the risk is lower for, for investors and therefore it, it, it's less uh, likely that you will see a, a, uh, a speculative withdrawal of funds, if you like, or uh, problems um, or, or that governments will have problems rolling over the public debt. Uh, so, so I'm less uh, worried about that, uh, that now. Of course, that depends upon how far the um, ECB will push up interest rates and uh, that also depends upon what happens. Suppose that we have another inflation shock. For instance, the war in Ukraine is, is, is taking an unexpected turn, oil prices surge and so on. Then you could imagine that the ECB decides to raise interest rates dramatically. I mean, another 100 basis points or, or, or 200 basis points or something like that. And then indeed we could have a, we could have a problem. Very often when governments run into a problem, it's because of a combination of factors. It's not just high interest rates, but it could be high interest rates. And for instance, a political crisis or, or something like that, or high interest rates and a sharp economic downturn and so on. Um, so government's um, fiscal position are, are I think, a, a source of concern in some countries in Europe, particularly in Italy, because the Italian economy is so large and the public stock of public debt is so large. Um, but uh, but uh, I, I, I don't think this is... This seems to me it's, it's quite unlikely that this will be a, uh, a problem. There's, of course, another aspect to higher interest rates and government's fiscal position, and that is uh, now when the ECB and other central banks are raising um, interest rates, they suddenly have to pay large amounts of money every year to the banking system uh, in remuneration of the commercial bank's deposits with the central bank. And that means that uh, central banks will no longer be profitable. And they will um, therefore cease, in many cases, cease uh, making uh, profit transfer to governments. And that will have a fiscal effect. But I think that's more of a political effect than a real, um, real numbers effect, if you like. The amounts are not that uh, large to be of primary fiscal importance. But it, politically, I think this could be, this could be uncomfortable. Now, uh, you mentioned the war in Ukraine. And obviously, that's a, a very tragic uh, human event. But to what extent do you think it is still of importance from the sort of policy and economic perspective? I suspect that the um, um, the global economy and central banks and so on, policymakers, economic policymakers, have now adjusted to this to this shock. And of course, it's not good for the global economy. Perhaps maybe more uh, a problem for. Uh, for economists that that 
um, buy a lot of food products from the uh, from Russia and Ukraine, such as countries in the Middle East and Northern Africa, and, and so on. But for the global, for, for the overall global economy, I don't think this is a uh, this is a major uh, this is a major problem. Um, but of course, Stephen, that war could be, could um, spiral out of control, and then we, we we would very quickly be in a in a, in a very difficult um, situation. Just imagine how financial markets would react. If God forbid uh, uh, the Russian uh, uh, armed forces used a nuclear, a tactical nuclear bomb or something like that, there would be an en- would have an enormous impact on sentiment in financial markets, and, and that would of course generate a huge, huge uncertainty shock, um, which would be felt across the world. But barring barring that, I think the it seems unlikely uh, to me that this would be a have very major macroeconomic consequences beyond those that we have already experienced. Well, uh, that's a relief to hear it. And I, I guess, um, you know, thankfully, Putin's showing no signs yet of uh, going down the nuclear route. And that, that does seem like only a tail risk at the moment. Um, but, uh, yeah, it does uh, seem like it is more or less well-priced by markets. And I think, um, you know, reassuring that uh, energy markets at least are certainly much better behaved this year than they were last year but still yes challenging times now um you know even prior to the war in ukraine the geopolitical framework um was already seeing some signs of stress in particular brought about under the trump administration trying to renegotiate relations with china um so perhaps we can Turn to China, and uh, you know, how do you see China's role in the global economy playing out? It's been the the factory of the world for the past thirty years. Um, do you think it will still maintain that role, or do you think you know global supply chains and global trade patterns are going to have to reinvent themselves? So I think uh, I think there will certainly be changes in trade pattern patterns and global supply chains, but I suspect that those will be at the margin, impacting perhaps on specific products. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, um, various high tech products or products that might have also a, a secondary use uh, uh, by the military could could be affected. Uh, but I still think things like our toaster ovens, our microwave ovens, and so on, TV sets, laptops, and etc., will in many cases continue to come from 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 China. It is an enormously large economy, massive productive capacity, and most of what they export really aren't sensitive materials. The few things that are, I think, there we will see a realignment of trade. But I think the bulk of Chinese exports will be will be will be unaffected. Well, uh, yeah, let's hope so. Um, I think, uh, you know, something else I, I'd like to touch on and, and seek your opinion on is the role of demographics in terms of the global economic outlook. We've, we've seen Japan, obviously, be the poster child for declining uh, demographics and, uh, you know, Japanese working population now shrinking. But, you know, bits of Europe, not that far behind. China as well, of course, thanks to the one-child policy, also facing some headwinds. So what are the implications for growth? 
Well, I mean, overall growth, of course, will be will be lower, and I think growth per capita will probably also be lower because with an with a, a labor force that is generally older, uh, older, I think productivity um, may not be growing as quickly uh, uh, in the future. So, so we will see a, a slowdown, I think, from that perspective, and of course, that will have an impact on savings and and investment. Uh, and investment patterns in very quickly growing economies in economies where people know that they're going to be much wealthier in 10 years or 15 years from now where wage growth is strong it's natural that you go and borrow for future uh, you borrow, um, for future needs if you like for instance you you um, you borrow a lot to buy to buy a house you know there's a big loan right now but if your salary is increasing very very rapidly then you can easily pay this back over the next um, 15 or 20 years. Um, so, um, in general, we expect borrowing to be positively linked to, to the growth rate of the economy, and therefore we expect real interest rates to be positively linked to the growth rate of the economy. And there one can well ex- uh, imagine that, uh, that, that this will have a big impact, as in fact I think this is one reason why real interest rates may have fallen over the last uh, over the last 20 years. So lower productivity growth, or sorry, uh, and, and uh, lower population growth, uh, I think w- will have an impact on productivity growth and therefore on, 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 um, on interest rates and so on. So this is a big, uh, this will plainly be a big factor. Of course, people have uh, different views about, about this, but one potential solution is of course migration. Um, it's much easier these days for workers to move from one country or from one continent uh, to another um, than it was historically. And I think the uh, sort of scope for migration is in many ways much greater than in the past. And this will, of course, offer one way for economists to attract younger workers and to re- re- recover their economic dynamism, uh, uh, if you like, uh, and indeed, I think this uh, this is uh, one reason we've seen why uh, there has been a fair amount of uh, of migration. Uh, if you if you think of, for instance, the uh, migration within the European Union um, over the last thirty or forty years. Um, uh, has obviously generated lots of opportunities, for instance, from workers from Portugal, from um, Spain in particular, to move up towards uh, work in German labor markets, uh, etc. And before, while the US and the UK was a member of the European Union, we saw lots of labor um, uh, uh, workers move from Eastern Europe uh, to the UK and 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 boost the economy, uh, the economy there. So I think there is a way to, a way to recover this dynamism, but that implies more more migration, and that's of course a political question: how much how much migration people would like to would like to see. But from a from a strict economic perspective, I think that is in many ways one way of 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 recover the dynamism that perhaps. Um, uh, perhaps has been lost as the uh, growth rate of population for other reasons sort of is, is slowing down. Stefan, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing your thoughts on the global economy and the policy outlook. I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to discuss this again on future podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. This has been Beyond the Benchmark. And if you have any further questions, please contact your EFG representative and we'd be happy to answer. Thank you.